You didn't know it, but while you guys were worshiping, I was depositing tens of trillions of dollars in each of your accounts. You're welcome. Compass 2020, you thought was about expanding the church, but really it was about expanding my bank account. But I want to be generous, and so I thought I would share the, the fruit of that labor with you. So what are you going to do with your tens of trillions of dollars? Let's just say, for instance, that you did have that much money in your account. You wouldn't be able to spend it probably fast enough. You'd have so much money that you could spend, you could spend it on anything and really not have to worry about any money for the rest of your life. What would you do with your tens of trillions of dollars? I know what I'd, I'd do. I'd buy a nice Tesla, of course, yeah, buy a Tesla, put it on autopilot, drive around for a few hours, asleep, and a Lamborghini, despite the fact that Matt Duplissy thinks I'd look so sketchy having a Lamborghini. Um, <laughs> I would buy some things. I'd probably give most of that, I think, to, to Compass 2020 so we can plant some churches. So if you guys are thinking about giving me a trillion dollars, I'm, I'm okay with that. But what would you do with a trillion dollars? Tens of trillions of dollars. I mean, just an, an insane amount of money. Pay off the national debt. No one has that much. <laughs> We're not going to beat that. We'd be in debt again next year. Well, for some people, you don't have to imagine because they post about that on the internet. They're known as the rich kids of the internet. These are the kids whose parents are so ludicrously wealthy that they could spend their money on anything. And their parents are, are more than happy to lavish them with anything their hearts and minds can desire. You've seen some of the pictures, I think. There's, there's pictures like this where you have a, a Rolls Royce, and I think that's a phantom, somewhere in the ballpark of three hundred to $500,000 for that vehicle. And I don't know why there's a dog on top. Better than a cat, let's just say that much. As long as there's something godly on the car. I mean, that's an expensive car. So this, I, I don't know, teenager takes a picture of his car and says, hey, check out my car with my dog. Pretty amazing. Or uh, if, if, again, if, if my parents had this kind of money, I wouldn't blame them. I'd, I'd ask for a car like this too. And then I would take a, a picture with my head down with my swanky gear and my awesome car with the doors up. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe the compass pastors could start an account like this. <laughs> Have my, my Honda Civic doors open as I pose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it'd be as popular. <laughs> but that's pretty cool. I mean, having a, a really insanely expensive car and showing off. Now, imagine for a second that you have this car or you have this kind of money where you roll up to school in your brand new Lambo. I'm telling you, if I had this car, I'd be revving the engine left and right. Don't even have to rev it. Just for fun, you know? Especially if you're rolling up to school. You see your crush over there. You roll down the window. You know? Maybe show her the dog. It's the dog. Put the dog back in the seat. Or if, you're, if your parents got a lot of money, maybe you don't want to ride up in a Lambo. Maybe you want to fly in on your helicopter. You know, land in the middle of the football field. There's your crush. You show her the dog again. The dog in the seat. As you fly over the science, the science building. What's up, bro? You know, the dog. <laughs> Or if you're really wealthy, maybe you don't even fly. You don't drive, you don't fly. No, because your school is surrounded by a body of water. You drive up in your six-figure uh, Mercedes SUV to your yacht, and then you boat over to the school. Of course, as you're driving your boat by, you hold up the dog again. <laughs> What's up, boo? You know? It's really expensive lifestyle. If you have a cat, you throw it in the water. <laughs> It's really funny to see how cats respond to water. 
I don't know. I feel like a lifestyle like this would be pretty fun. I, I guess when you're really expensive too, I mean, when you have a lot of money, you just have a lot of time to work out because all these people are super fit. They want you to know that normally they're shirtless and all those other things, but I found the most conservative pictures I could find. But let's just say, you know what, you're a cat person. God help you. You want to drive to school because you're humble. You're conservative. You don't want, you know, don't want people to know that you're insanely wealthy. So you drive to school in a modest car and you have a cat with you. It might as well be a white tiger if you're going to do it. Wow. I don't know what kind of car that is. I don't even know what kind of tiger that is. That's probably illegal. Probably illegal. But that high school senior, give or take, rode up to your school with his tiger and his, I don't know what kind of car that is, but I'm sure that's a really expensive car. And of course, you need to take pictures of your car. Hey, look at my car. It's funny about this photo is that the house in the background doesn't seem all that nice. It's got really nice cars, but the house looks like it could be, could stand a few cleanings. Just saying. So what would you do with your trillions of dollars of cash that I just deposited into your accounts? And how would you respond to that? Well, here's the thing. In this parable this morning, not a parable actually, in this account that this, this morning, Jesus encounters one of the rich kids of the internet. In fact, this rich kid of the internet is no, is no chump. He's actually young. He's well-to-do. He's also a ruler. We'll talk about what that means. And he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. And I'm guessing maybe this, this rich young ruler rolled in on his really nice brand new camel, you know, with the, with the spinning hubcaps or whatever. And he, he comes to Jesus and he asks the question of all questions. He is one of these guys rolling up in his brand new camel saying, what do I do, teacher? And it's amazing the response that Jesus gives because it's not the response that I would give. It's not probably the response you would give. He asks a question of questions and yet how the young man responds is devastating. It's a tragedy. You see, it's not the money that's the issue, right? All these kids, you know, I'm poking fun at them with the cats and the dogs and all that and the boats. But is there anything wrong with that? Can a Christian have that kind of money? Can a Christian be insanely wealthy? Does the Bible say anything about how we're to deal with that kind of wealth? In this particular account, people have used this text before to say, well, there you go. Christians are supposed to do the exact same thing. Whereas a close reading of the text will tell us something different. So this morning, if you haven't turned already, let's do it together. Mark chapter 10. We're still making our way through the gospel of Mark. And praise God, I am loving this series so much. I'm benefiting so much. And I hope you are too. In this text, Jesus is going to deal with the rich kid of the internet. And he's going to talk to him about some really hard things. And you might not think that you have anything to learn from him. Because you might say, well, Pastor Rod, I clearly am not wealthy. You know, I drive a Honda like you do. Or, you know, my parents aren't that rich. You know, we're not that kind of people. And I would say, what Jesus has to say doesn't matter about your financial strata. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank or don't have. What Jesus is going to talk about applies to every single one of us in this room. And in fact, if you're not hurting from this sermon by the end of this time, you probably weren't listening. Because what Jesus says is not just for the rich young ruler or the rich kids of the internet. It's for you and for me. Without further ado, let's jump into our text here. And let's listen to the master teacher talk to one of the rich kids of the internet. Here's the rich kid. He comes up to Jesus. As he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus. Jesus is preparing to go to Jerusalem. This is now the last part of his ministry as he begins to make his way to the cross. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. Okay, now pay attention to those two words there. Ran up and then knelt before him. Two things I want to point out. 
In this time and place, it was not meant to be a, a gentlemanly thing for you to run. Why? Well, because you had to pick up your skirt, which is, I mean, it's not a skirt skirt like, like the ladies wear. You know, their long, blousy type clothing that was flowy. This man would have to pick it up, thus exposing his legs, which probably weren't very well manicured, running over to Jesus. And then he not only does that, but then he bows down. He prostrates himself before Jesus. This is an incredible display of respect. And this is something that someone like him and his dad is probably would not do. As I told you, this is a rich young ruler. Ruler of what? He likely was, a, was a, a ruler of a synagogue. So he was religious. He was a good guy. He made a lot of money and probably well-respected among the people that he knew. People would look at him and say, well, there's an example of success. Talk about the favor of God. The man is blameless. He doesn't do anything wrong. And look at that. Now God has blessed him with a lot of money, camels and oxen and whatever else. And he's, uh, he, he's well-to-do. Okay, so he runs up, you know, breaking the social convention, runs up, kneels before Jesus. Great display of respect. And he says, good teacher, good rabbi. What must I, what's that word there? Anyone paying attention? Good rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's the first indication that he's not thinking about this the right way. Jesus said to him in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Some would say that he, what Jesus is doing right there is making a point. I'm not God. You got me all mixed up. Don't call me good. I'm not God. Only God is good. In fact, Jesus is doing the opposite. Jesus is challenging this young man's understanding of what good is so that he can destroy it. You'll soon see what that's about. But Jesus is trying to test. Do you really understand what you mean when you call me good? Or are you just recognizing that I'm special without really fully understanding the full, the full breadth of what that means? No one is good except God alone. Verse 19. You know the commandments. And now notice what Jesus does here. He says, do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Um, don't, uh, don't, don't murder. Let's skip that one. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness, which is to say don't lie. Don't defraud, which is to say don't steal. Pe- don't, don't take advantage of other people for their money. And he says, honor your father and mother. Okay, Bible students, what's Jesus quoting here? Ten Commandments, and specifically, a certain table of the Ten Commandments. Think about the Ten Commandments in your mind. There's two tables. Table one, which has to do with our vertical relationship with God, and table two, which has to do with our horizontal relationship with man. It might be broken up like this. The first four commandments deal with how we relate to God. The second table deals with how we relate to man. Now, just in your own mind's eye or in your head, just think about the answer to this question. If you were to point to which one is easier to fulfill, which one would you say that would be? Don't answer out loud. Think about it in your head. Jesus challenges the young man and says, why do you call me good? He says, here's the commandments. And then he proceeds to give him the second table of the commandments, which is hypothetically possible to fulfill if you're only looking at a superficial understanding of what the commandments are. Matthew chapter 5, you remember Jesus said to him, you've heard it said, he shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her, commits adultery in his heart. So if you're, if you're taking that aspect out of the internal workings of your heart, then sure, it's possible to fulfill these commandments. Possible. Well, the young man sees Jesus' response, and I think maybe with a twinkle in his eye says, boom, I got it. Because how he responds to Jesus in verse 20 says, teacher, all of these things I've kept from my youth. As if to say, I nailed it. I got it. I I nailed it. 
and Jesus. And I, and I love this part. This is, this is unique to the Gospel of Mark. There's other Gospels that talk about this account, but only this account says these, these special words. Pay attention to this here. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's, I would imagine Jesus looking at the man saying, I understand what you're saying, but oh boy, you are so lost. You don't get it even in the, in the least. You might be a good person, rich young ruler, internet, you know, rich kid of the internet, but you, you so miss the point. So I can imagine Jesus looking at him with compassion and with love saying, oh, you're missing it. You're missing it. Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Now, does this young man lack more than one thing? Absolutely adultery, uh, honoring the father and mother, not lying, not defrauding. Jesus could have picked every single one of those and said, okay, let's really talk about defrauding and lying and honoring your parents. Jesus didn't do any of that. Jesus does something remarkable. Instead of paying attention to the overgrowth of the weeds, he goes right to the weed heart, the heart of the, the root of the matter, and says, okay, let's not pay attention to all of the periphery here and talk about lying and honoring parents. Let's go to the root of the matter. Now, remember, I told you, when he's quoting the commandments, which table is he skipping? Table one, the first four commandments. What's the first of the first four commandments? Keep that in mind. You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have. And could have been everything for this guy. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then you're going to have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. What an incredible opportunity. Think about that. Jesus tells this rich young ruler, hey, get rid of all you have, liquidate your accounts, and then come do what I do. Come watch me. Come be with me. Come be part of my entourage. This young man could have been one of the apostles for all we know. He could have been one of the greatest among them. Opportunity of a lifetime. How does he respond? Disheartened. His heart drops to his stomach realizing what Jesus just told him to do, and suddenly calculating in his head. I'm sure he's just number crunching because he's, he's, he's rich, and so he's thinking about his money and just thinking about his belongings. Say, okay, I have to get rid of the yacht. I have to get rid of the Lambos. I have to get rid of my you know, new camel with the hubcaps, and I have to get rid of you know, all these things that he'd accumulated by being a good person, good person, and his heart dropped to the center of his stomach where you, know, you have that feeling of like, oh, I don't feel good now. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The rich kid of the internet runs to Jesus, bows to Jesus, and then walks away from him. Maybe we'll see him in heaven, but Jesus' point in this is not just about his wealth. It's about commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And for this young man, the God that he served was so strong in his life that he couldn't even fathom a life without the comfort and the security of his money. Young person, point number one, you ought to beware the soul-destroying power of idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is a sin that I think all of us struggle with in some measure, and I think I can prove that to you. But the Bible warns about idolatry in no uncertain terms. And to, to be an idolater means to have something in your life that is above God. Something in your life that is, is your primary allegiance. And God is unwilling to tolerate any of that in anyone's life who would call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. Beware the soul-destroying power of idolatry. It's not the kind of thing that you play with. 
The Bible says, and just for you who are Christians, you say, well, I don't struggle with idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Which is to say, if you're a Christian, idolatry is something you are commanded to put to death, which is also to say, it's possible as a Christian to still have idolatry lingering in your heart, a weed that constantly grows that you have to pull and rip out of the center of your chest. 1 Peter 4, 3 for the, time that it, that, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, those who are not Christians. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Again, the point being here, even as Christians, if you've been serving Christ for your whole high school career, don't think that you're suddenly exempt from the sin of idolatry just because you've made a profession of faith. Christians are called to reject it. The flashing neon sign is 1 Corinthians 10.14 which says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run away from it. Don't even get near it. Don't play with it. Don't hold it. Don't taste it. Don't touch it. Run away from it. Don't even try to fight it. It's running away the opposite direction of idolatry. Flashing neon signs that are meant to ward you off from danger. There's a story about that in San Francisco. A 17-year-old girl goes hiking with her two friends. She encounters a sign that says this, and I know it's hard to see because people have written on it, but this is the best image I could get from, the, from this particular event. It says, area closed. And right beneath that, I know it's hard to read again. It says, danger, area closed. People have fallen to their death from this point. The young lady and her two friends realized that the sign did say that. But unlike, uh, unlike some, I, I suspect, who turned away, she said, okay, no, no problem. I'm just going to go in anyway. So her and her two friends proceed to go on a trail that was very dangerous and precarious. And what do you suspect happens? This young lady, of course, falls to her death. Her two friends didn't. She fell. She died. And I'm sure for her and her mind as she's going through this gate saying, oh, you know, I, I know this says no, don't go here. I'm sure she's thinking, but I could get great photos. Lots of people have done this before that haven't been injured. There's, there's people that have taken awesome, uh, awesome photos and people have liked them. There's a lot of good reasons why I should do this, even though the science says it's dangerous. Young person, this is exactly what Jesus is doing uh, through, through the, the, the sin of idolatry, saying stay away from this. Idolatry is real, and our hearts are connected to something that's more than God himself. This is where you're in danger. You're under the fence, you're lingering around the cliff, and you might fall off. You might fall off. So one of the things I want to do with you really quickly and perhaps painfully, is to see if there's any idolatry in your life and heart right now. Let's diagnose together in the doctor's office of God's word and say, is there any part of our lives where we are idolaters? Is there any part of us that continues to replace God's authority and rule in our lives and pose a danger for us? So I have three questions for you, okay? Three questions, they're kind of long, so bear with me. And there are three questions based upon the accounts of the rich young ruler, the rich kid of the internet who deals with Jesus. And I think these questions will help you diagnose if there's any lingering or even growing idolatry in your life. Question number one, do you believe God himself is the only and absolute standard of good? That's the first thing Jesus addresses with the young man. He says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Jesus, again, is not denying his goodness. He's simply saying, do you realize what is meant by the word good? And do you understand that only God is perfectly good? Do you, are you intending to call me that, rich young ruler? Are you intending to refer to me as God? If so, good, that's right. But understand what good really means. He's an absolute standard of good. It's not comparative. We might say that all of us in this room are pretty good people. 
I would imagine that none of us in here has robbed a bank or shot people up at a you know, school. People in this room, you're good people, comparatively. But when we talk about God's goodness, it is absolute, it is unflinching, it is impeccable, and it is perfect in every way possible. Which is to say then, that when we think about what is good and what is not good, we can't say, well, I'm doing better than him. I'm a better guy than this guy right here. I'm a better girl than this girl. It's about, am I a better person than God? No. Therefore, I have a lot of room to grow. And here's the danger. You look at each other and you'll say, well, you know, maybe I can watch this raunchy TV show because it's not nearly as bad as the show that he's watching. He's watching that rated R thing with the other thing and the, the, the deal with the girl and the guy. And, but I can watch this other show over here because it's not as bad as that one. Or you might say to yourself, oh, you know, I, I listen to this song because it's really catchy. Yes, it denigrates women. Yes, it glorifies sin. And yes, the guy who wrote it hates God, but I like the song. It's a good, catchy beat. I just want to hear it. And yet, when, when, we, when, they, when he says the F-bomb or he talks about ladies being a, a dog, I don't say those parts. I, 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 I say them differently. I use different words when he says that. Or when, he, when he's singing the song in my head, I think it's something else comparative standard of good it's not as bad as the other guy who listens to this song you know it's not it could, you know the other explicit music that i listen to or, or the other people listen to is way worse than this comparative standard of good i can use this particular word because it doesn't offend my conscience my conscience isn't bothered when i use the fill in the blank bad word that you might use why well, because, you know, the scripture says, scripture doesn't say explicitly not to say this particular word. In fact, aren't all bad words just a cultural concept anyway? So what does it matter if I use this word versus that word? They're using, and, and there, there is some truth to that argument, some, some. But what you're doing is you're trying to cre create a comparative, lateral comparison that justifies your desire to do wrong. You're not thinking about God as the ultimate standard of good, and therefore, you're able to justify things that you want to do that are sinful. That's exactly what's happening. And of course, as I already mentioned, Matthew 5, Jesus says, there's, there's, there's obedience to the law that is nearly external and superficial. Superficial. It's, it's this deep. But Jesus says there's a way to understand the law that is not this deep, but it's infinitely deep. It goes to the level of your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your eyes. And it covers everything. He says that's what the law really is meant to do. And if you think about the law that way, that ought to crush you. It ought to destroy your self-confidence. Because when you think of the law as being perfect, you no longer can justify yourself. The law infiltrates every single crevice of your thoughts, your eyes, your mind, everything. And then you can no longer say, I'm a good guy. I'm a good girl. You can only say God is good. Which really does fit nicely with the second question. Do you seek to maintain a high view of God and an accurate view of yourself? This pairs nicely because you have to have an understanding, a concept of God being absolutely, perfectly good, which then allows you to maintain an accurate view of yourself. Recently, I was, I've come to know what, what the sauna is. There's a sauna at my gym. I love it. I love it. Makes you all sweaty and gross. Except for the time that a guy walked in completely unclothed. But that's a different story. Different sermon illustration. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I had to do the, oh, I didn't look the other way. It was really awkward. Okay, having this conversation. I've been finding it to be a good, a good fishing hole because you get to have good conversations with people. Talk to a guy 
who said something like, hey, how you doing? And we're talking, shooting the breeze. And I said something like, oh, I'm better than I deserve. I'm so grateful for the day. It was something like that. He says, my name, because we exchanged names. He says, you deserve God's best. And I said, oh, really? Why do you think that? And of course, that led to a conversation about the nature of God's goodness and his justice. And uh, he, he said he, he had an experience with a, someone where he asked someone, hey, does it make sense to you that God would condemn someone to hell for 60, 70 years of evil? If that God would condemn them to hell forever? And I thought to myself, the only way that you would answer that as no would be if you have a very low view of God. If you have a very deficient and defunct understanding of what God's goodness is. Young person, this is why so often we pound this pulpit day in and day out saying, read your Bible, know who the Lord is, understand the Lord from his word and not from your cultural imagination or your own desires for who you want God to be. That's idolatry. When you craft God into the image that you like, the image that you're comfortable with, you've created a God in your own image and not the God of the Bible. And that's often the problem for most people in the world. It's not that they, it's, it's not that they don't have uh, some kind of uh, sentimentality for God. It's that their sentimentality for God is not based, founded, grounded, built from the truth of the scriptures. You have to have a high view of God. And here's the thing, the, 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 the default for you is not to wake up every day and say, man, I have such a higher view of God today than yesterday unless you're doing everything in your power to cultivate that. Because by definition, or by default rather, your inclination is going to be to devalue God, to lower him in your life, because it's more uncomfortable. It's much more uncomfortable to live with a God knowing that he is absolutely perfect in every way. And that you are in his crosshairs, unless you're a Christian, of course, you've been exonerated and freed from your sin. But a high view of God and an accurate view of self will help you to determine if you have a low view of God and you have an exalted view of self, you're likely an idolater. Likely. Probably more than likely, actually. This last one, this last question, really is the linchpin. This last question is the one that will likely crush you. You ready for it? This is a painful one. Let's do it together. Do you allow anything, anything in your life to compromise your devotion to God? Is there anything in your life that stops you from being obedient to your Lord, your King, and your God? If so, you are an idolater. The rich young man comes to Jesus. He says, good teacher. Jesus says, why do you call me good? The young man says, I've kept all these things from my youth. I'm actually a pretty good guy. And Jesus says, okay, prove it. Let's see if you've obeyed commandment number one, that there's no other God before, before you. Go sell everything. And that's when the young man shrivels into a small ball of humiliation, of shame, and of unworthiness for Christ. Young person, this is everything. You've had several sermon after sermon this, for this series about the nature of what discipleship looks like, about what it looks like to follow Christ, to honor Christ. This is where the rubber meets the road for you. If you dare call yourself a Christian, it's because you've thrust yourself on the mercy of Christ, realizing that you have nothing else to cling to but Jesus himself. On Christ the solid rock I stand, uh, stand all other ground is sinking sand. Everything else in your life is not meant to sustain you or hold you up. This is what it's about. Is there anything in your life that compromises your devotion? And maybe it's a relationship. 
a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a best friend, someone that you know you should not be with, someone that you know is not good for you and you're not good for them. You're just not good together. And yet, because you like them so much, you might tell yourself you love them so much, because you like them so much, you're unwilling, you're unwilling to create a space in your relationship because you love them more than you love God. Even though when you're with them, you know your love for God diminishes. You're not a good witness. When you're with them, you, you compromise all over the place. You laugh at the dirty jokes. You listen to the bad music. You might even contribute to a bad conversation because you like them and you want acceptance from them. That's compromise. That's idolatry. If you like listening to a certain kind of music or artist, when I was in high school, I was really angsty like the rest of you. <laughs> so I used to listen to people that, music and artists that really spoke to me in my pain. I felt like this justified my experience of that music because I really found, uh, like they understood me. They're, they're speaking my language. They get me. Was that helpful? No. <laughs> Was it the fruit of the Spirit speaking? No. But did I like it? Yes. Was that idolatry? Yes. When you find yourself trying to excuse the kind of music that you listen to, the kind of people you support, just because they make you feel good, that's a bad sign. You're likely an idolater. You're compromising because you want that more than you want Christ. And for, honestly, this could be anything. It could be a certain food. Maybe you eat your emotions, and instead of disciplining yourself for godliness, you think, you know, I just want to have another cheesecake, or uh, you drink, or maybe it's a medication. Maybe, maybe you're on a certain medication that, you know, helps you with your depression and your anxiety, but instead of dealing with the root issue, you're just taking medication, hoping that that resolves your issue. Again, I have nothing against medication. There's a time and a place, and I'm for that in its, in its proper context. But when you're just using it to drown out your own personal issues, instead of running to Christ for help, what are you doing but substituting the Lord for your medication or your food or your drinks? Or may, maybe physical comfort is your idol. You're willing to confess Christ as long as it doesn't hinder your physical comfort. I don't want to get up too early for praying and Bible reading. I don't want to go to bed too late. I don't, want to, I don't want to inconvenience myself too much to love people because it's physically taxing and I need my rest and I need my beauty sleep and I need my food or whatever else. Maybe that's your idol. Now here's, here's, here's one that a lot of people struggle with. Uh, maybe your school and your sports is that thing for you, your idol. Your school is so important to you that you're unwilling to make the same kind of sacrifices for Christ that you're making for your grades. And not to say that they're equal, I get that. But you're waking up exceedingly early to get the best grade possible, to get in the best school possible, to get the best job possible. Meanwhile, Jesus is, is kind of like a trinket on your tree or a Christmas ornament. Uh, among you, the, the, the tree of your life, you have ornaments for your sports and for your boyfriend and girlfriend, your music, and you have ornaments that decorate your life. And Jesus is just another one of those ornaments that you put on the tree. He's another addition to what is otherwise known as your life. But he is not your life as in the whole total life. If, if Jesus is an ornament, he's the ornament that when you put it on the tree, it crushes everything else underneath it. Because his will, his desire, his life consumes our own. I'm not saying school's bad. I'm not saying sport's bad. In fact, sports is a good thing. School is a good thing. It's a blessing. But when that usurps God's role in your life, you are an idolater. If anything in your life is more important to you than Christ, you are an idolater. You're in danger. Hope I'm not coming across too strongly in this, but I do want you to feel what I think is the crux of the, the story of the rich young ruler. 
the rich kid of the internet who has everything, the Lambo, the, the house, the cars, the everything, he runs away from Christ because it costs too much. When Jesus really said, oh yeah, you want to follow me? Let's really find out what that is then. He gave it all up. He gave it all up. It gets worse before it gets better. Let's make our way through this next section here. Jesus isn't done yet. Jesus is now going to commentate on what just took place. He's going to assess the situation. He's going to talk to his disciples, and he's going to help them to learn some really powerful lessons about what he just witnessed and what they just saw. Jesus looks around as if to kind of just assess, where, where are you, disciples? What are you thinking? He says to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, and this is, this is intimate here. This is, this is uh, Jesus drawing near to them and saying, young ones, listen to me. It's kind of what I use for you guys sometimes. Young person, listen to me. But Jesus is drawing his disciples in and saying, grown men, children, listen from me. Learn from me about this. And Jesus repeats himself. He doesn't do this very often. Jesus is about to say almost exactly the same thing just to drive the point home. Are you listening? Here's what he says. He says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's so difficult, in fact, that here's a good illustration. It's easier for the largest animal known, next to the elephant, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Kind of a comical concept here, but can you imagine an, a, 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 a camel trying to fit through the, an eye of an itty-bitty needle? Of course, it doesn't make sense. It's impossible. And in fact, the disciples are going to say, you can't, be, you can't be serious. They're flabbergasted at this. And they say to him, and they said, who can then be saved? If not the rich who are clearly experiencing your favor, who can be saved, Jesus? And he looks at them and says, with man, it is impossible. It's impossible. There's no way, but not with God. For, for all things are possible with God. Here is the flashing red neon sign that Jesus wants to put plastered on your face. Okay, you got to see the grave danger of materialism. That's the point. Jesus, first of all, identifies idolatry in the man's heart, but then he goes and he talks about the danger of materialism in particular. It's not just idolatry generally, it's materialism, which is idolatry. The God of materialism eats her followers, really like any God. When she snares a poor soul into her grasp, unless the Lord delivers him, idolatry of materialism will consume the one who follows her. John Whitaker won the lottery, and I love what he said about this because he experienced what is called the curse of the lottery winner. End up divorcing his wife, his granddaughter uh, dies under super mysterious circumstances, he, he loses a bunch of money doing a bunch of silly things, he starts drinking, starts you know, committing violent acts, but at the, at the last part, the last little paragraph, he says, since I won the lottery, I think there is no control for greed. He says, if you think you have something, there's always someone else who wants it. I'd wish I'd torn up that ticket. This is a guy that had millions of dollars before he won the lottery, and then he has another 90 million, and then suddenly he realizes the kind of impulse that human creatures have. We're greedy, we're idolaters. He says, I wish I'd just torn up that ticket. 90 million is not worth this. What are the dangers of materialism? Well, first and foremost, dangers, the danger is that possessions that you have can possess you. Jesus says, how difficult it is. Why? Because the things that you have are often the things that can ensnare you. 
things that can make you feel like you live for them rather than them being a servant to you. And it's like I, one of the things I love doing at home is, is vacuuming the rug. And I, I love, it sounds silly, I know, but I love the clean lines. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, the clean lines just make me so happy on the inside. It's one of the best experiences. It's not my home, by the way. <laughs> I just found someone that did it really well. But here's the thing. What happens when you do this on the rug? What do you tell people? Hey, don't step on the rug. <laughs> but you just vacuumed it so I can step on it. No, don't step on the rug. This is nice. Don't mess up my creation here. This is beautiful. But see, to understand it that way is to really have it backwards. You're vacuuming so as to be a benefit and a blessing to your family. You have a clean rug. But when you're vacuuming and you're keeping the lines there, now the rug is no longer being used for its purpose. Now you're serving the rug because you want the rug to look nice. Possessions can easily possess you, and that's really the point. Jesus tells us no one can serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one can serve God and money. You can't have two gods in your life. One will always win. And often you can tell who's, who, uh, who the life by finding out where you spend most of your time and most of your money. That likely is where your heart is. That's what Jesus says. Not only that, the danger is also that wealth and riches can deceive you. We talked about this a few sermons ago when we were looking at uh, Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the soils. Do you remember that? Parable of the soils. Wealth and riches can deceive you. Uh, Remember Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He talks about the thorny soil. Those who hear the word, but the cares, and the, uh, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word so that it proves unfruitful. Wealth and riches can deceive you. Why? Have you guys studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs yet? You guys heard about that? It's a, it's a, it's a theory, a, psycho, a psychological theory about the concept of human motivation. What compels us to do what we do? I don't know how, how good it is. it is. It's good for what it is. Let me just say that. It's helpful for what it is. It's often depicted like this. You have five levels, and the highest level is self-actualization, where you're trying to uh, really live to your highest and best self. And so it's based upon, premised upon, psychological safety, physical safety, uh, relational safety, and, and uh, emotional safety. Let me, let me explain it this way. Here's another way to look at this. Psychological needs. You need air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, etc. And then on and on it goes all the way to the top. Think about the, the way that money can be used to meet all of these things. You have enough money, your psychological needs can be met. All the clothes you want, you're going to be healthier probably, you can sleep on a nice mattress, you can buy the best food, safety needs, if you have enough money, you can even you can buy your own personal security. You, have a, you probably have a good job, you have lots of resources, you can get, you're healthy probably, you can, you can get pregnant more easily, property and all that stuff. Um, you have enough money, you're going to have some people around you who want to be your friend. You can buy friendships. You can buy intimacy. You can buy family in some respect. You can have a sense of connection because your money provides you the context. You have enough money, you're going to have respect because you're going to be dressing nice. You're going to have self-esteem. You're going to have status. You're going to have recognition. You're going to have strength and freedom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Self-actualization to become the most that one can be. You have enough money, solves all those issues for you. Get rich. Get happy. Accept that this thing is missing one critical component Oh, that's right, you have a soul. A soul which will not be satisfied or fed no matter how much money you pour into it. Beatles sang about it, right? Money can't buy me love. Money can't buy me. That's a, that's a, that's a, a secular band making an observation that money ultimately doesn't buy me this, the sense of self-worth, a sense of uh, closure that only God can provide, which is really 
the point. Only God can deliver you. Not money. Possessions can possess you. Wealth and riches can deceive you. But only God himself can deliver you. Only God can deliver you. There are dangers in materialism. But that doesn't mean that Christians can't be rich. In fact, would that all of you be trillionaires? Trillionaires who love God so much that that money doesn't own you, but you use that money in service to God's kingdom. If everyone in this room was a trillionaire, Compass 2020 and all the churches that we want to plant would be fully funded and we'd be making some waves. There's nothing wrong with being a rich Christian. What is wrong is being a materialistic Christian, a greedy Christian, an idolatrous Christian. That's the danger, young person. And God says, he who is faithful in little is faithful in much. Let me ask you this. How are you doing with what God has given you right now? The little bit that you do have. I know most of you don't have piles of cash in your bank account, and I was lying about giving you trillions of dollars at the beginning of service. How are you doing right now with the little that you do have? Are you faithful with the little God has given you? If not, there's no way God's going to want to feel, you know, God's going to feel comfortable giving you trillions of dollars of cash because it's the person who is saying, I'm not going to be owned by this stuff. I'm going to let this stuff be used for God's glory and his honor. These are the dangers. Only God can help. The good news of this. Peter said to Jesus, look, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said to him, Peter, I rebuke you. You should not be setting your mind on rewards. You should just do this for your own sake. You should do this because you love me. Jesus does not do that. And I love this about Christ because what he does is instead say, Peter, you don't even know the half of it. I, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, there's going to be pain, and in the age to come, eternal life. In fact, Peter, this whole system is going to be topsy-turvy because many who are first will be last and the last first. The Bezos and Musks and the most powerful of this age are not going to be first in the kingdom. It's those who are using their life to freely give to Christ and watch what he does through that. Jesus is trying to free you from the bondage and the shackles of materialistic, idolatrous thinking by saying, don't worry about where you live, your houses, your cars. God can provide for you, not only in this life, but the life to come. So give freely to the cause of Christ. Don't hold back. Don't hold back on things that you don't have to worry about. Give freely to the cause of Christ. If I go to your house today and I'm saying, hey, I want to have lunch with you or dinner because we're doing the football tournament. I go to your house for dinner. And I ask for a glass of water. And I say, Nathan, can I please have a glass of water? And Nathan gladly brings me a glass of water. And I drink it. And I'm just saying, Nathan, thank you so much for sacrificing this glass of water for me. I'm so thankful for this. He says, it's no big deal, Pastor Rod. I'm happy to serve. And so I'm really thirsty because I was preaching. And so I asked for another glass of water and another glass of water and another glass of water. Do you think at any point in that time, Nathan Justice is going to say, Pastor Rod, well, we're really running low on water here. You, are you sure you, you need that much water? We're running low. We don't have a, we don't have a lot of water here. No. He's not shackled by how much water I, I ask for because he has unlimited energy. It comes from the tap. He's happy. He's not threatened by my con con consumption of his water. And that's the thing. When you, when you have access to unlimited resources, you don't have to concern yourself too much when someone's asking for something from you. That's what it's like to be a Christian. God is saying, you, you have access to the family bank account. Don't sweat it if you give something up for the sake of Christ because I can provide for you. I own the cattle on the thousand hills. Do you think I'm not going to take care of you? 
I saved you. I gave you my son. How will I not with him provide you all things that you need? And of course I'm going to take care of you. And so we can give freely to the cause of Christ because God is freely and generously giving to us. So what you got to do is see your sacrifices as investments. Every time you give for the sake of Christ and for the gospel, it's not that you're just throwing it away in hopes of return. Jesus is saying, when you give, you're investing to your eternal future. And guess what? You're not going to really suffer in this life too much. Because you have the family of Christ, you have the body of Christ, you have everything that you need in Christ, I'm going to take care of you. Immediate and never-ending returns. Furthermore, when, when God says he's going to take care of you, what did Jesus say? He says, when you give, Peter, I can't tell you, now you're going to get not a thousandfold, or not, not tenfold, but a hundredfold what you lose in this life. What's he talking about? He's talking about the, the, the Christian community. Whoever leaves house or mother or father or brother or sister for the sake, for his sake and for the gospels. I mean, just look in this room. If, if everyone in this, in this room is a Christian, you have 200 Christians, brothers and sisters in your life right now. Some of them are older brothers and sisters. Some of them are younger brothers and sisters. But if everyone in this room is a Christian, you have 200 brothers and sisters. People that, if, if their understanding of their role in the church would give their kidney for you. God is exceedingly generous. I mean, just think, look, look at the shoes that you're wearing for a second. Your shoes probably cost 50, 60 bucks. Some of you have $300 shoes. You have shoes that are nice. Not everyone who has Christ has a shoe that, that's, that, that's, that's that nice. That's a silly illustration, but you have nice stuff. God not only gave you Christ, but he gave you houses with four walls and heating and air conditioning. He gave you nice shirts. He gave you, you know, clean hair. You got shampoo. You got soap. You have so much in this life that God has blessed you with. Can you not trust him? To say, I can let go of whatever God is residing in my heart to put you back on the throne, God, and let you be my leader. He's exceedingly generous to you. Last, if we're going to give freely, we need to realize that this life is fleeting, it's short, it's temporary, the next life is forever. And the thing is, you, you are too lowly-minded. You think too little about, about the next life. Remember, Peter says, look, Lord, we've left everything for you. And Jesus says, great job, Peter. Now, let me tell you this, Peter. Anyone who loses anything in this life, they're going to get so much more in the next. Eternal life. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. So I'm going to quote him because he says it brilliantly. He says, if we, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of those rewards promised in the Gospels, which is what we're reading, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even fathom or imagine what it means to have an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You ought to be ambitious for the next life. This life is fleeting. Soon enough, you're going to have wrinkles on your face and gray hair on your head. Ladies, you're going to need more and more makeup to keep that face looking good. Young men, your big, strong muscles are going to be weak, flabby muscles. You're going to die. Maybe not now, but eventually. You will age. And you'll find that this short, fleeting life, while it's great and it's a blessing, I love my life, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my church, there's so much about life that I, I just love. But I'm looking forward to the next one, and so should you. And the way that you do that is by setting your mind not on this life, but on the life to come. Be ambitious for that. 
Would that some of you even think about the possibility of being a missionary, of traveling to a distant land that doesn't have the Bible, that doesn't have the gospel, and you say, I want to reach them for the sake of Christ, even if it costs me my life. That would be amazing. Jesus calls us to something better. Leave idolatry. Leave materialism. Give freely to him who, a God, who is a God who gives freely back to you so much more generously than you could ever fathom or imagine. Let's pray.